With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is a crowd podcast. How do you measure potential? How do you weigh up what might be? It's sport's eternal question. So much talent. So many wannabes. So few certainties. What alchemy of genetics and training, drive and luck, turns young hope to gold? Coaches and parents set hearts on it. Scouts and agents gamble millions on it. None can be sure. Ask a physicist, though, and they have an answer. They say potential can be calculated exactly. It's mass times height times gravitational force. MHG, that's it. That's potential energy. It's a pretty simple equation. It's an even simpler idea. What goes up must come down. And the bigger you are, the higher you go, the greater the forces involved. For Sarah Burke, there's another part to the equation. Sarah grows up in Midland, Canada. It's a big sky, small town kind of place. She has snow, hills, and a father who makes all the time she wants for skiing. Initially, it's moguls, the bumps. To succeed over moguls, you have to stick to the snow. You have to iron out the bumps. You have to resist the upward momentum as you race down the slope. But Sarah has her sights set on the skies. The half pipe is officially off limits. It's where snowboards soar and skis are barred. Sarah, as a teenager, she's only interested in a different set of rules. Every time she races up those sheer 20-foot walls, she's making a deal. Her speed and bravery buy her freedom. Freedom from gravity, freedom from preconceptions, freedom to make her name. But the terms on that debt are brutal. One mistake, one hesitation, one millisecond out, and that potential energy at the top of her trick, it can turn against Sarah. Instead of building her profile or paving the way for others, it can tear ligaments and bruise flesh. It can break bones. It can end lives. That's the trade-off every time she starts a run. As she strives for more height, more revolutions, more fame, more influence, she takes on more risk. Her own potential, her own future, exposed to clear and present danger. How do you do that? 
how do you look your loved ones in the eye one moment and stare down the barrel the next? Sarah asks a different question though. How can you not? As a teenager though, she can't do it, not in competition. Sarah's been skiing alongside boys in Horseshoe Valley since she was five. Carving hard, jumping high, hanging out. But when the judges come to watch, when there are scores to be handed out, somehow it's different. Sometimes she's allowed to compete. Sometimes she goes down the pipe before the action begins for real. Sometimes not even that. Every time it kicks it off. In a sport where precise technique matters more than brute power, why can't Sarah take part? Why can't she take them all on? She phones home in tears from the mountainside. The injustice itches at her. I didn't understand why I could beat half those boys and they wouldn't let me in the contest, she says. Aged 15, she writes an email. This time, it's a different request. She doesn't want entry into a boys' event. She wants a whole girls' competition. The message lands in an inbox in Leafy, Connecticut. It's where ESPN are based, the organisers of X Games. The annual event, a kind of Olympics of action sports, has only been running for three years. ESPN hoped it would pad their schedules, perhaps extend their appeal beyond the usual jocks. Instead, it's a phenomenon, a concept that finds its time. The Cold War's over, the Gulf War's won, but America's lost its youth. Generation X doesn't want to be taken out to the ball game. Instead, suburban kids are dropping out the mainstream and tuning in to alternative scenes. Kurt Cobain, Nirvana's doomed frontman, beams out from MTV. In a mocked-up high school gymnasium, black-clad cheerleaders twirl pom-poms as he trashes his guitar. It's a pep rally for a new spirit, a new kind of teenager, one disillusioned by the square jaws and short back and sides of collegiate sport, one sold on a counterculture. You can see it in the cinema as Point Break surfs into view. You can see it on the console screen as the pixels play out California games. You can see it in the streets as ramps are built for skaters that were once shooed away. And at X Games, it's as clear as a frozen winter's day. <laughs> Nearly 200,000 spectators attend the first. It's more than the organizers dared dream. ESPN immediately decide to hold the event annually rather than every other year. By 1997, it spawned qualifying events, a European offshoot, and crucially for a teenage Sarah, a winter version. It's not just the kids who love it either, the man does too. Sponsors want in, not just skate, surf and ski makers, but blue chip brands, and they're clutching big books. The X Games audience is so hard to reach, so resistant to their usual tactics. This is a chance to break the ice. Nike's swoosh is one of the first logos to secure a spot. And then fast food, fizzy drink, weak beer and big trucks all buy in in search of anti-establishment street cred. The money creates new gods. Skateboarder Tony Hawk becomes the name and face of a computer game. Snowboarder Sean White is plastered with endorsements. But initially, only gods. 
not goddesses. That request for women's half-pipe at the X Games, the one that Sarah taps out in a teenage bedroom at a family home, it isn't granted for nearly a decade. ESPN say they don't doubt Sarah's quality. They invite her to do exhibition slots. They just aren't sure if there are enough women like her to make an event. Sarah knows differently. Every time she straps on her skis, it's with one eye on the crowd rather than the podium. She doesn't want to rise alone. She wants to inspire her future rivals. She wants other women to see her, try to be her. Where others might see competition, she sees collaboration. She mentors other women in the halfpipe. She explains how she soars and how they can follow. And when ESPN tell her there just aren't enough women for a separate event, she's ready with receipts. She writes a list, detailing other women and what tricks they can stick. Sarah knows because she's helped teach most of them. She hand-delivers it to ESPN. This time, unlike with her teenage email, change follows. For them, and for her. She wins silver as Women's Ski Halfpipe makes its debut the following year. Another five golds follow in the next few years. Suddenly, she's a celebrity away from the mountain. Here she is on a hot July evening in Los Angeles, walking an award night's red carpet with LeBron James, Mike Tyson and Serena Williams. Or here, in the pages of men's magazines, posing with skis, snow boots and little else. She's set, but she's not satisfied. As a little girl before skiing, Sarah loves figure skating. Aged five, she watches the Winter Olympics in Calgary. She sees Canada's Elizabeth Manley win a surprise silver. She's inspired, sets her sights on competing on the biggest stage of all. Now, 23 years later, the feeling is mutual. The Olympics need Sarah and her new sport as much as she wants them. Once the Olympics was an automatic headline event, a juggernaut that could not be ignored in a world of few television channels and less noise. Now, it's got competition. Cable expands choice. The internet broadens horizons. An audience taken for granted could easily be taken away. Some have already turned off. Those five rings have lost some of their luster. The headlines have been about old men and backroom deals, not the youth of the world coming together. The Winter Games going to Salt Lake City and Nagano because of the gifts on offer to those in power. Sarah's part of the antidote. A smile that makes you forget the grubbiness. An attitude that makes you remember the ideals. An ability that makes even the casual sports fans jaw drop. She'd hoped to persuade Olympic organisers to bring in half-pipe skiing for the 2010 Games in Vancouver. Their decision comes too late for that. Instead, it will be in Sochi in 2014. No matter. It will be the highlight of Sarah's life. The culmination of a career. The justification of a belief. A belief that says you compete because you should be able to, regardless of what they say. Rory Bushfield is lying in the snow, pleading with Sarah. He needs her help. It's a two-second job, but it's not a pleasant one. 
After a heavy fall, his kneecap has slipped 90 degrees sideways. Instead of facing forwards, it's on the outside of his leg. He shunted it back before. Doing it straight away while the ligaments are still loose hurts. Wait for a doctor and drugs, let it seize up and the recovery is longer. If you recover at all. Sarah can't do it. The sight of her boyfriend's knee sticking out at that angle turns her stomach. Rory takes the hit himself, grips his kneecap, grits his teeth, and yanks it across. Afterwards, he teases Sarah about how unreasonable she's been. Often, when we go looking for sports star stories, we want to know the inspiration and the initiation. Who sparked the passion? Who set the ball rolling? From that start, we draw a straight line. From one sliding door to inevitable success. It's always more complicated, though. Circumstances change, characters come and go in lives, and potential, which once seemed unlimited, can vanish with them. You see, it's not always about who gets you into a sport, it's about who keeps you in it. Sarah's dad does the first part. He does the 10-hour drives to accompany a shy Sarah to ski contests across Canada. He sells possessions to fund her career for just another season. But it's Rory who does the second. He and Sarah meet first on the moguls as teenagers. He's on the Alberta team, she's Ontario. They ski together and they dream together. Both are ambitious, not for trinkets and trappings, but for a life lived at altitude and at extremes. Most of all, they laugh together. Rory's all slacker charm and schoolboy scrapes. Sarah's endlessly upbeat with a smile for everyone she meets. They click like a lock and key. One day, as Sarah skis under the chairlift he's riding up, Rory turns to her friend and tells them, that's the girl I'm going to marry. It takes a decade, but he does. Not long after that chairlift ride, Rory is a junior world champion on moguls. But that success puts him on a pathway to nowhere. He's promoted to a more regimented development squad, but the rules and rigour drain his love of the sport. He looks elsewhere. He hits the halfpipe where Sarah later makes her name, but ultimately, the only competition he wants is himself. As a kid, he built ski jumps on the family farm. It's a strange thing to do on Canada's pan-flat prairie, but Rory makes it make sense, convincing friends to fire up a tractor and tow him over the ramps. Instead of the judges and selectors, teams and rankings of organised sport, he makes that DIY daredevil stuff his career. Leaping off roofs into bushes, diving off cliffs into water, swinging off roofs with a grappling hook. If it's dangerous, Rory does it. He's one of the world's best big mountain skiers, floating down sheer slopes across powder, rocks and drops to freedom. But he's an artist who works in many mediums. He cooks up jumps across foaming rapids between moving cars into holes cut in ice. And suddenly, there's a way to make it pay. 
Big Mountain ski footage used to be small time. It was captured on VHS tapes and bought and sold among insiders. The digital age brings it into the open. Filming is easier and cheaper. Distribution quicker and simpler. Clips are chopped and shared. Sponsors are pushed and promoted. Rory isn't selling any company, not directly. He's selling a lifestyle. He lives the dream a desk drone can't. He pulls the stunts they can retell as their own. The TV show Jackass becomes a hit, all about stupid dares and stunts. And Rory's just as clever. He carries out feats you wish you could, in places you wish you were. His greatest trick? That's saved for Sarah. Months before, he goes to meet her father and asks for permission to marry her. Sarah's father, the man who nurtured her early talent, cries, hugs Rory, the man who now supports it. Rory packs supplies, takes a shovel and treks into the wilderness. On a remote mountainside, he trudges up and downhill, back and forth, following the same pattern over and over. And then he leaves. The next day, Christmas Eve, Sarah returns home from a month away in the mountains. There's a lot to do. She and Rory have friends to cook for, people to see. But Rory convinces her to take a trip in his two-seater plane. He flies over the mountainside he visited the day before. Below them, out the window, trampled in the snow, in 60-foot high letters are three words. Marry me, Sarah. Rory says he would have put the plane into a nosedive until he heard the answer he wanted. He doesn't have to. Another partner might temper Sarah's drive. They might urge her to be sensible rather than exceptional. She may have to compromise to accommodate. Most couples do. That's love. Finding the common ground to grow from. But Rory doesn't ask Sarah to change. He doesn't shy from the danger she takes on. He doesn't blink as her star power puts him in the shade. They stand shoulder to shoulder around a big idea. Sarah sums it up. She says, I think you should scare yourself every day. She says, I'm a firm believer in getting your heart going, trying something different and new and overcoming it. That's why you can put it all on the line. When you look the person you love in the eye and see the same flame that's in you. Come in fast. Fling your weight over your shoulder on takeoff. Rotate one and a half times, horizontal to the ground. Land going backwards. A flat spin 540 is not an especially hard trick. Not for Sarah. Not for the first woman to pull a 1080. Recently, though, it's been a little glitchy. Not as fluid as the judges would like. Not as slick as it needs to be for gold. So, at her coach's suggestion, it's part of Sarah's practice run in Utah in January 2012. She lands the 540 on her feet, but as happens sometimes, she snares an edge. The ski flips out and she flips over. The crash doesn't look like much. The impact isn't huge, but in the wrong place, it doesn't have to be. 
The whiplash that throws Sarah's head back severs an artery in her neck. That bleed brings on a cardiac arrest. She's placed in a coma. She doesn't wake up. Nine days later, she's dead. Did she over-rotate? Did she miss her landing between the half-pipes, razor lip and the hard floor? Was it a lapse in concentration as she ended her run? Sarah knew the risks. She was aware of the tiny margins and the momentous possibilities, how the forces amplify every error. At this half-pipe, they're impossible to ignore. Just three years before, on the very same run, a famous American snowboarder suffered career-ending brain damage when a high-risk trick went wrong. Sarah's death, like her life, asks questions you're not sure you can answer. Do extreme sports athletes fly too close to the sun? Have the money and the medals, the glory and the fame, tempted them too high? When the world is saying, just do it, is there anyone stopping to say maybe, just don't? Sarah suffers her fatal fall in an event paid for by a sponsor, an energy drink maker, rather than a national federation. A minor detail, but one that jumps from the small print to a headline in the following days. You see, Sarah's insurance doesn't cover unsanctioned events. As Rory and her parents grieve, somewhere inside the University of Utah Hospital, the bill is totted up. Initially, it's estimated that Sarah's nine days care will cost more than half a million American dollars. That looming burden, though, it becomes an outlet, a way to express love rather than quantify life. From around the world, donations arrive, $10 here, $20 there, some from those who knew Sarah, more from those who didn't. Overhauling that mountain of debt becomes a monument to her. In the end, Sarah's medical bills are buried under the avalanche. There's enough money left over to start a foundation in her name. That is the grand gesture. But there are more. Smaller in scale, as deep in emotion. At the X Games, a week after Sarah's death, they turn off the floodlights over the halfpipe. In the darkness, a long column of her rivals and friends descend, clutching torches. At the bottom, they embrace her family, each in turn handing over a rose as they pay their respect. Back in Midland, later in the year, a smaller crowd gathers on a cloudless July afternoon. Together, 40 neighbours have lobbied to have their road renamed Sarah Burke Way, in memory of the little girl they watched bounce on her trampoline and rise to the top. Sarah's father, who still lives on the street, unveils the new name and tells of his pride in his daughter. And then there's the Olympics, the games where Ski Halfpipe was due to make its debut, the games in which Sarah was to star. Trennan Painter is the man who was to make sure she got there. Used to ski moguls became Sarah's longtime coach. But it's deeper than that. He's a friend, not just to her, but to Rory too. Such a good friend that Rory got him to help stamp out his proposal in the snow. 
Nine months later, Trennan was best man at the wedding itself. For two years after her death, he and Rory plan. And then Trennan, as Canada's half-pipe coach, packs his bag for Sochi. Others also have Sarah in mind. Several of her competitors have worn stickers on their boards and helmets since her death. A snowflake and Sarah's name. A dignified nod to a pioneer, a tribute to a friend. But at Sochi, the International Olympic Committee have other ideas. A spokesman says it has huge sympathy. It absolutely wants to help the athletes remember her in some way, just not in the way they want to. The IOC bans the stickers and symbols from the halfpipe. It is not the appropriate place or time. Sochi is all about keeping up appearances. The games are a grand set piece for the hosts. The director is Russia's president, the former KGB spy, Vladimir Putin. He's the man who brought the snarl back to the great bear, a strongman pushing back against Western powers. In the build-up to Sochi, he offers asylum to a whistleblower who leaked details of America's spy network. He shores up Ukraine's finances and undermines its independence. He's making moves and creating waves. For a lot of Russians, that's enough. To feel like they matter, to have some pride again. And no event delivers a quick hit of patriotic pride like in Olympic Games, so long as it runs smoothly at least. And there are plenty plotting to make sure it doesn't. Based just a few hundred miles from Sochi, are several separatist movements. Men who use bombs to try and blast new nations away from Moscow's grip. And Olympics is their chance to embarrass Russia on a global scale. And so when Trenin arrives for the Games, he passes through a huge concrete checkpoint, 60 miles outside Sochi itself. There's only one road in and out of the resort. All along it, perched in the mountains, are watch posts and soldiers. In the city, there's snipers on roofs. There's cameras covering every angle and anti-aircraft missiles in the harbour. The whole place bristles with security. They're not looking for Trennan, though. A smiling, tanned 40-something, all the small metal cylinder tucked in his pocket. They don't stop him as he strides to the top of the halfpipe. There's nothing unusual in him taking a couple of recce runs, but maybe there is something odd in what he does next. He slowly walks down the course, stopping every so often. Stopping to shake some of Sarah's ashes into the snow her skis will never touch. Then, he takes a lift to the highest point he can, looking out over the whole Olympic site. The slopes below him, the rings in the distance, and only the stars above him. He wants the full perspective of how far Sarah has come, of how much she's brought with her. Later that week, everyone in Sochi and on screens around the world can see the same. Maddie Bowman, an American, wins the first women's ski half-pike gold in Olympic history. As she emerges from the embraces of her own family, she has words for another. She says, Sarah is the reason we're all here. Without Sarah, none of us would be Olympians. The story's the same wherever they finish. There's competitors who Sarah convinced to return to the sport when it got onto the Olympic programme. 
There's others who made the pilgrimage to her bedside during the nine days when she hung between life and death. Some with a personal story, others with more distant inspiration, all walking the trail she blazed. Sarah's mother and father are there to see it. Not waiting to watch Sarah's run anymore. That moment will never come now. Instead, they see her in every run. In the girls that have lived on to live out her dream, and they embrace each one like a daughter of their own. At the end of the competition, as the crowd slips away, Sarah's parents linger, taking in the last moments. And from the top of the halfpipe comes the shape of a human heart. The team that prepare the halfpipe make a final descent in formation and in defiance of the IOC's ban. And there, high above the Black Sea, many miles from Midland, the final part of Sarah's logic comes clear. How can you risk everything? How can you put your loved ones through the fear? Or worse, the despair? Because sometimes, the alternative is worse. To always take the safe path, to always play the percentages, to live for a tomorrow that never arrives, not a today that is yours for the taking. Her father Gord smiles as he remembers Sarah. He says, I feel satisfied with what we packed into the 30 years we had together. I can smile without any regrets. We have this little bond that was perfect from the beginning. I never really had a bad day with her. I learned a lot from that kid. This episode of Death of a Sports Star was written by Mike Henson and performed by me, Emma Clark. It was edited by Phil Brown. For a search, we use the Ski Channel, ESPN, The Globe, The Daily Mail, and The New York Times. The music we used is from our partners, BMG Production Music. If this is your first episode, we'd like to recommend our one about Kobe Bryant, or the one about Pat Tillman, the American football star who gave up life in the NFL to fight for his country in Iraq and Afghanistan. And if you're a music fan, we have another series called Death of a Rockstar. There you'll find episodes about Amy Winehouse, Whitney Houston, and Jeff Buckley. Just search for Death of a Rockstar in your podcast app. Thanks for listening. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. Hi, listeners. We wanted to take a moment to tell you about another podcast from Evergreen Podcasts and Sound Talent Media called Pit Lane Parlay. Pit Lane Parlay is the go-to podcast for IndyCar and motorsports-related news. Each episode, we discuss things like our favorite drivers, news clips from the last week, and generally giving each other a hard time about predictions we've made in the past and or life stories that have come up recently. We really have a lot of fun with it and really enjoy each other's company, and we hope you can come join us too. Join Pit Lane Parlay by following us on your favorite podcast today. 
Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato and this is Pit Pass F1, a brand new podcast that'll take you closer to the action of the world's most prestigious motorsport. From Monaco to Miami and Australia to Azerbaijan, Pit Pass F1 is on the ground and has you covered. Esteemed F1 journalists Julianne Serasoli and Chris Medland will take you inside the sport every round. They'll keep you up to date with the latest news breaking in Formula One and the most influential views shaping the world of Grand Prix racing. Every Friday, we'll be bringing you a track guide and race preview, and Chris and Drew will be in your feed every morning from Saturday through to Monday to keep you up to date on all the day's action on and off the track. So if you want to be in the know on the latest in Formula One, subscribe wherever you get your favourite podcasts and visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Pit Pass F1, a brand new show for Evergreen Podcasts. Have you ever wanted to know how to win a Formula One Grand Prix? I mean, really know. Know about the driver tactics from the cockpit, the strategy calls from the pit wall, and even the mind games in the paddock. There's a lot more that goes into winning a Grand Prix than just 90 minutes of racing. So every week on the F1 Strategy Report, we're taking a deep dive into the decisions that shape every result. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato, and every week I'm joined by an expert guest from the paddock to talk through the big calls that won the race and the missteps that resulted in bitter defeat. Before every race, we'll look back at the previous year's result and consult the current form guide, and we'll be in your feed after every Grand Prix, dissecting the outcome and what it means for the championship. So for your regular hit of Formula One analysis, subscribe to the F1 Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name's Michael Laminato and I'll catch you after the chequered flag.